will be in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last, last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we count it a privilege uh, to gather on this, this Sunday of celebrating the resurrection. And God, even as we come to your word, we are um, mindful of the perhaps millions of Christians who are doing what we're doing right now or have done earlier today or will do later today. And that is gather to celebrate your resurrection. God, we celebrate... Uh, the, the good news of the gospel, that our sins can be forgiven, that we can, by faith in you, have eternal life. We celebrate that with Christians who have, for thousands of years, since your resurrection, have gathered as your people to sing and to celebrate and to delight in the life we have in you. God, for thousands of years and all across the world in all kinds of different countries and languages, people have already gathered earlier today to celebrate the resurrection Right in our town, across town, different places around our community, our brothers and sisters are doing this. They are gathered to proclaim an empty tomb in Fountain Inn, in Simpsonville, in Lawrence, in Greenville. Father, all across the East Coast, people are gathered throughout our country. Later today, people will gather all across the western, western part of the world. God, people will continue to gather today. And so, God, we pray the same prayer over uh, this time and this space that we pray for all those Christians, God, that your word would go out and accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish, that it would not return void, that God, the same power who raised Christ from the dead some 2,000 years ago, the same spirit who was alive and active then, we trust is with us now, that you are with us by the power of your spirit, and you can quicken our hearts, change our lives, transform us into the image of your son. And we plead that you would do just that, even now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I have an uh, appreciation for people who are very witty and clever and can always have just the right thing to say when they need to say it. You know those kind of people? I, I tend to be the kind of person who days later or hours later go, Oh, that's what I wish I'd have said. The emails do that kind of thing. That's where I tend to be. I think a prophet named Elijah was more like the first group. He was pretty clever because in a, in a pretty tense battle he had in 1 Kings 18, 
he had a very clever and witty reply that I want to start with this morning. That chapter, if you know anything about that uh, encounter, was a battle royale between one prophet, Elijah, and the true God, and 450 false prophets to a non-God, false God named Baal. And the battle was set so that each group built an altar out of wood and then put an ox on top of it. But the deal was nobody gets to light it. You have to ask your God to come and to bring the fire. And so the prophets of Baal being 450, they get to go first. And they go all out to try to get Baal to show up. There's dancing, there's blood, there's all kinds of things. And Elijah in the middle of that has one of these little one-liners that I just... I admire people like this. Here's what Elijah says, 1 Kings 18, 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. He is either musing, you know, deep in thought, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. That witty Elijah, just the right clever little jab at these false prophets and all their antics of the day. I mentioned that story from the Old Testament because of that, that one line of how Elijah mocked them. He, he said, maybe you need to just shout a little louder. Maybe he's just deep in thought, you know, Baal is, and you just, you just need to get his attention. Or maybe he's in the restroom and he's just occupied. So keep shouting. He'll hear you eventually. Maybe he, he went on a vacation. I hear the Mediterranean. It's just so great this time of year. Or, oh, you know what? Elijah says, I didn't look at my watch. It's, it's siesta. It's, it's, it's midday nap time. And so he's just, he's Baal, your God, Baal, is just sleeping. If you keep shouting, you'll wake him up if you get louder. Here's why I want you to wonder and ponder for a moment. Elijah was, of course, saying all those things because Baal's not a God, right? The end of that, if you know the end of that story... Uh, Baal never shows up because, you know, he doesn't exist. God did show up, brought huge fire on, on the offering that Elijah had offered, and then all 450 prophets were killed. So just in case you're on the edge of your seat how this, that story ended, that's how it ends. But here's why I, I bring this to you today. I wonder how many of us think about, think about all those things that, that Elijah was accusing of Baal. How many of us act like those things are actually true of the one true God? And here's what I mean by that. No, no, I don't, I've never heard somebody in here, maybe you thought this, but you haven't said it to me, but I've never heard somebody say, oh, I think God's sleeping today. <laughs> I think God's on vacation today. You, you may not say those things out loud, but I wonder how many of us functionally live our lives as if God was essentially dead, that he's or at least not paying attention or too busy or preoccupied. And so he doesn't have time for me. He doesn't think about me, whether it's from past experiences where you feel like God has let you down or whatever else you've been through, you just come to God and you think he might as well be out on vacation because I haven't seen him show up. Elijah takes this jab about these false prophets and their false God, but I wonder of us how many, how many of us actually live like God really is like that. He is not really involved in our lives. If God is functionally dead to us, what would that mean for us, for our lives, for our future? and for what comes after this life. On this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Day, we come to a place in Mark chapter 12 where, where some religious leaders 
tried to trap Jesus around the idea of resurrection. And I, I am aware that the passage that Wanda just read for you is not a traditional Easter Sunday passage. However, when I planned out and mapped out how he'd preached through this section of Mark, I just had to wonder and marvel that it just so happened that this little conflict about the resurrection would land on the calendar on Resurrection Sunday. And the more I studied it, the more I was convinced it was perfect for Easter because just as the people were questioning Jesus and they had doubts and false ideas about the resurrection, we too struggle to, to know the truth of the resurrection, but even more so to connect the truth of the resurrection to our daily lives. Our false ideas, our false concepts and, and, and misconceptions and functional disbelief in the resurrection means we feel like what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago is basically irrelevant to us. It's a great story to tell. It makes good coloring pictures for kids to draw, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter for us. My prayer this morning is that we would better comprehend the living God of the resurrection. And in so doing, that our lives would be given over to a relationship with Him because He is alive. In Mark 12, 18, we read the Sadducees. They come and they're, they're attempting to shame or discredit Jesus by putting a little trap before Him. They, they come up with this fantastical kind of hypothetical situation that seems so ridiculous they thought it would prove their point, their own belief, that there is in fact no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Of course, they didn't realize who they're talking to. Pretty hard to trap, you know, in some little clever mind game, the one who threw, through whom the entire world was created. So you're probably not going to win at this, Sadducees, but they didn't know that yet. And so they turned back to this Old Testament law and tradition of a Leverite marriage, which meant that if a brother, if a man died and didn't have any sibling, or didn't have any children, one of his brothers should take his brother's widow as a wife and they should have children in the name of the older, older brother. That was kind of the basic idea. And so the, the, the Sanhedrin, I mean, the uh, Sadducees come up with this ridiculous thing where all seven brothers take the same wife and, and nobody ever has children. So they say, what are you going to do in this so-called resurrection, Jesus? How, how could one man be married, or seven men be married to one woman in, the, in heaven? How's that going to work out, Mr. Messiah? That's kind of their taunting place as they're coming to Jesus with this question. They have this high and mighty place of, I, I think we got it. He can't answer this one. I don't think they're actually wondering the answer to the question. You see, you see what I'm saying? They're just trying to trap him. They're just trying to get him confused. They probably believed that when you die, that's it. You're done. You live your life, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years on life, however long you get, and when it's over, it's over. That's probably what the Sadducees thought. Jesus, of course, could tear their argument apart. And I think you'll see this pretty clearly as we unfold His answer. What I want you to hold firmly today is Jesus' final reply, that final sentence He gives to the, to the, the Sadducees that day. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is the God of the living. Do you know that? Do you know God is the God of the living? Whatever else you've been through, whatever else you experience with God has been up to this point, whatever letdowns and failures and missteps and times you've questioned God, do you know God is alive? Do you know He is living? He is active. He is not asleep. He is not distracted. He's not on vacation. 
He is living. And He's alive today. That's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. That tomb that Jesus came out of, He never went back in. It's still empty. God is still alive. If you believe that, I wonder if it's having any impact on your life today. If God really is alive, it should change everything. And for Jesus, as He goes to answer this question, His own resurrection was still a few days away. This was probably Tuesday or so. The week, the few days before he's crucified. So, so he, isn't, he doesn't point forward and tell them about what's about to happen. He points backwards to give them further proofs of what's going to happen. Mark 12, 24, read, Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. He corrects, not, he doesn't try to answer their question at first. He'll get to that. He first tells them the, the underlying assumptions that there is no resurrection. The reason you, the whole, the whole assumption behind your thing, it's completely wrong for two reasons. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. We'll take those one at a time. The scriptures proclaim God is the God of the living. The scriptures shout loud and clear from beginning to end, God is the God of the living. Resurrection, eternal life, new life. These are not brand new concepts that Jesus somehow drops in the middle of your Bible by the time you get to the New Testament. Jesus points backwards and says, this is the same God we've been worshiping from the beginning. This is the same God who created the world. And you have missed it from the very first page. You don't know the Scriptures, Sadducees. Now, for you to hear that, you may not think that was offensive. But the Sadducees, if you knew them, they were experts in the Scriptures. It'd be like telling a mechanic, you don't know cars. Or a carpenter, you don't know lumber. Or a pharmacist, you have no clue about medicine. He was speaking to the, their very field. They're experts in this field. And yet, he says, you've missed it. If you've missed the resurrection, Jesus says, you've missed it all. You can't have a God who's not alive and say He's the God of the Bible. You've missed it. You're clueless. They probably didn't like him saying that like he did. There's plenty of Old Testament passages Jesus could have pointed to in that moment to, to prove that the Old Testament been, has been proclaiming the resurrection all along. He could have pointed to Daniel 12, 2, which says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to, eternal li- to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or he could have quoted Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Or he could have turned to the the Psalms, like Psalm 16, which says, My flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. Or, thanks to Hebrews 11 helping us understand Genesis 22, We could have turned back to the story of Abraham being willing to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Hebrews 11 tells us that he he did so believing God could raise him from the dead. Abraham, in the very first book of the Bible, had resurrection faith. Jesus could have quoted any of those. Because over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the Bible proclaims God's the God of the living. He's the God who brings new life. He's the God who brings resurrection. I hope, just to pause for a moment there, I hope you can 
appreciate that. That God didn't have to stop and think at the year, you know, zero when Jesus showed up and go, man, my plan hasn't worked. What can I do now? Oh, I'll send Jesus and we'll do the cross and resurrection. Okay, that'll work. That'll work. This was not plan B or C or F. God had planned the resurrection and had been putting it into the fabric of his people and of the universe from the beginning. The God who spoke life into existence in Genesis 1 is the same one who spoke life into the tomb on the first resurrection Sunday. It's the same God. The same one. He's the God of the living. Listen, we we come to God sometimes with a, a big question mark on the next day, the next week, the next 10 years of our lives, and we go, I I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to work out. I can't see a path forward. We can open up the Word of God and say, you know, Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, had resurrection faith, or even further back, the very beginning of foundation of the world. God had a plan. And if God could plan out the resurrection all those years ahead of time, it's hard, but we can trust God's got a plan for our future. He's the God of the living. He's not going to go to sleep on you for the next 10 years. He's not going to make you try to figure it out on your own. He is alive. He's doing well. And He is in control. God is the God of the living. And the Scriptures have proclaimed that from the beginning. Jesus had plenty of options to pick from in the Old Testament. And I gave you a handful. I deliberately picked ones He didn't pick just to show you that He had options. But it's amazing the one he does choose to pick. Notice what he picks. In verse 26, it says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses the passage about the the bush? So the way your Bible is divided, chapters and verses, we threw those in there later so that we could reference it. As of Jesus' time, no chapters, no verses. So he's saying, author, Moses, and then some key feature about the story. Remember the burning bush? Okay, we know Exodus chapter 3. We can go find that. So he's referencing this story. Why would he pick this one? For one, the Sadducees really only took the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. They took all the prophets and all the writing, all the history, and said, you know, I mean, it's good, interesting stuff, but it's not like God's Word. So Jesus says, okay, you want to limit down God's Word? We can go in your five books, and we'll be just fine to be able to prove the resurrection is true from there. And so what he quotes is out of that chapter, out of chapter 3 in Exodus, And he says this, and it might not immediately be clear. How does this prove the resurrection, Jesus? What are you talking about? He says, verse 26, uh, As the dead being raised, you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, when you read that, you don't go, oh, the resurrection's coming, right? It's a little bit confusing. Some people read that verse, and the way they want to emphasize that Jesus was saying, I am the God of Abraham, as opposed to saying, I was the God of Abraham. And that is true. That is true. But grammatically, it's not where the emphasis of the sentence falls. In fact, in the original, there's not even a verb there. We just supplied that to make the sentence make sense. Instead, the emphasis was on the personal connection between God and a man, Abraham, and his son, Isaac, and his son, Jacob. He is pointing to the connection between, them two, between the two of them. So rather than quoting a specific prophecy or, or writings, Jesus is saying we can be certain. Here's why we can be certain of the resurrection. God has made some promises to some people a long time ago. And God always keeps His
His promises. God is in the business of building personal relationships, not not just in general with His people, but a man by the name of Abraham knew God. A man by the name of Isaac had a relationship with God. Moses knew God. And God made promises to them that if there was no resurrection, those promises would fall flat. Because He promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you are dead, it doesn't matter what your God says. You're not, you're not, you're just, the promise has been broken by death. 500 years after God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God t- shows up to Moses and says, I'm the same God. They're still my people. So apparently, their death wasn't the end. Does that make sense? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Infinity Church people, and people all around the world, and He still is because He is living, and He has called His people to live. God has shown us over and over again in His Word, He is the God of personal relationships, of covenant keeping, of promise keeping. So He's telling us the coming resurrection through Christ, that's going to be true for us, is consistent with God's very nature. From the beginning of time. He has always been a God of life. He's always been present with His people. We can, we can count on Him. Leave it to, answer, to Jesus to answer the question that way. If I'd have been posed to Jesus, I'd been like, Daniel 12, 2. Look, it's easy. It says it right here. And Jesus delves much deeper to the very nature of God Himself to prove the resurrection. Do you, do you believe those things about God? That He is a personal God? who keeps His promises, who builds relationships with His people? Do you believe that about God? Because that's the God we serve. He's the God of the living. He is not dead. He is the God of the living. We know that from Scripture, and we know that from His power. Jesus had told the Sadducees, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. The Scriptures tell us God's the God of the living, and the power of God tells us God is the God of the living. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but if they could fathom one, they pictured it essentially as just to wake up and keep doing life like you'd been doing. That's what they pictured as resurrection. That is not resurrection. That is resuscitation. That's, you got the, the you know, and you got life again. I don't know what you call those things. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's not resurrection. That's resuscitation. God is much more powerful than that. He can do far greater than just to take your weak and fragile body and just give it a you know, couple more years or a couple more thousand years. He does something far greater than that. 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, you, you just have to imagine, we're all, we're all going to struggle for language to be able to describe this because it's beyond our experience. But 1 Corinthians 15, the, the, the comparison there is it compares your body to a, a, a kernel, like of wheat that gets put in the ground, and then grows. The thing that grows doesn't look much like the kernel that was in there. Or take a, a seed and a, a lily or whatever else it may be. Take, take a, a, any, an oak tree and an acorn. Th- these things don't look like they're the same. It was planted. If you just had the two of them and you didn't know anything about how that works scientifically, you'd be like, these are not the same thing. And yet we know they are. Acorn leads to oak tree. That's the comparison for your mortal body being put in the ground and then resurrected in a glorious body. What is all that going to look like? I don't know. But it's going to be way better than just zoop, and you breathe a little more. The 
what Jesus, what, what the Sadducees were, were doing was they were limiting God's power. They limited him to just the continuation of what you've already got. Just a little bit more of what you already have. Jesus was talking about more than just resuscitation. Resurrection is about transformation. It's about a whole new body. There's a, there's a continuation. It's still you. It's still your body. But there's a new life to it. I, I heard about uh, Walt Disney, one of his favorite parts of all the, the, the parts of the movies that he had seen and been a part of up to that point was the scene where Cinderella's dress gets transformed. In that moment, she has this tattered pink dress that she had made by herself. And the fairy godmother says, bippity-boppity-boo, you know. And there's swirls around. And the dress goes from being this homemade, tattered pink thing to this beautiful ball ground in light blue just at the twirl of a wand. Still a dress, but it has been transformed. For a caterpillar to become a butterfly, you don't just take some wings and slap it on the little funky little body thing it's got, right? It is a transformation. The God you serve will do something with your body for all who believe that is far greater than whatever happened to Cinderella's dress or a caterpillar to a butterfly. He brings transformation not just a resuscitation. That was the confusion for the Sadducees when they tried to think about what this resurrection would look like. And so their confusion was around this idea of marriage, but it's about a very disbelief in God's power, just how powerful His transformation will be. So Jesus corrects them. When they rise, speaking of us, when we rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This verse gets wildly misunderstood, so stick with me for just a minute because I think it's important what Jesus is saying. He says, when we rise from the dead, we will be like angels, not that we will be angels. So it's false to say that we will get wings. In fact, in the Bible, the angels don't even have wings, so I don't know why we, we say that, but, but we don't, we're not going to become angels. He says we will be like angels. How will be, what, in what way will, will we be like angels? Well, he's right before it. He says, we neither marry nor are given in marriage in heaven. So that is, we no longer need to procreate because we will be eternal or everlasting life. We don't die, so we don't need to pass on to the next generation. There's not going to be another generation. We will be the eternal generation of the church proclaiming the glory of God forever and ever. There's no, proc- no continuation from we die and the next generation has to be raised up. So that's how we are like angels. And that our, we are immortal. We are everlasting. So it's not that we fly or have wings or sing harps. And again, even the angels don't do those things. So I don't know why we drop these things on the Bible. But we do. Jesus compares us to angels in our, in our immortality to prove a point about the power of God. And oddly enough, another way we twist this verse is that we take it as a step backwards. We, make, we, we take this as something that is less good about heaven than earth. And I too wrestle with this. It says, wait, there's going to be no marriage in heaven? But marriage is one of the greatest things on this earth, we think. At least during good days. I mean, I know that sometimes you question it, but it is. It's great. And we think that we come to this passage like, I'm, I'm going to miss my spouse. I mean, Lord willing, if you've got decades on this earth and then you get to heaven and they just go off into the sea of this eternal, you know, however you picture it, it's eternal worship service that just is boring to you, you know, whatever. And you're like, I'm going to hate heaven. Let's be clear. Heaven's going to be way better than this. 
So whatever, you're, whatever our misconceptions are, we got to remember it's going to be better. Jesus, Jesus tells us, be clear what he's not saying. Jesus says, we are not given in marriage to one another. There is marriage in heaven. One marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. And if you are a Christian, you are a part of that bride, which means that if you and your spouse are a part of, are you, you believe in Jesus, you too are a part of that one marriage in heaven. So when you get to heaven, you are not going to be less connected, less uh, in relationship, less in love with your spouse. You're going to have a closer relationship. That marriage will be far better than yours. And you've got great marriages. I'm, I'm not saying anything bad. But it's going to be way better. You are going to be united and your eyes are going to be focused on Christ and you and your spouse and all the other Christians are going to be worshiping Him together. When Jesus draws us to Himself, you know what that means? That means we get closer together. So whatever other picture we have about heaven, don't picture it as this sad thing that we get separated from our spouses and we'll never see them. No, it's going to be better. How is that going to look? I don't know. But it's going to be amazing. And we're never going to look back and say, man, this is great. But the one thing I miss about earth was that relationship I had. It's going to be better. Whatever it is, it's going to be better. Maybe a little bit confusing to us right now, but if I had to, uh, I, I think it'd be like trying to, if, I, if, if Amber and I took our three-year-old to Hall's Chop House, you know, the really fancy steak place in Greenville, and we said, hey, hey, you can pick any steak on this menu, assuming someone else is paying for it. <laughs> you know what she would ask? She would say, do they have chicken tenders? And I'd say, no. Sorry, she's a, she would say, can we go to Zaxby's, right? Because in her three-year-old body, her three-year-old palate, that, that it doesn't, Howells doesn't seem good to her. Our bodies are not quite ready. Our minds are not quite ready. We don't have an idea of just how glorious heaven is going to be. Our palate can't take it. We can't get our minds around it. But it's going to be far greater than Zaxby's, far greater than Hall's Chop House. The power of God displays God is the God of the living. Our life in heaven for all of eternity is going to be glorious and spectacular. God is alive and He brings, He is bringing to life all those who believe in Him with a re remarkable transformation. God's power has been on display from the very beginning, speaking the, word, the world into existence by His word. For decades, feeding probably millions of people by just dropping bread out of the sky, taking those same hundreds of thousands of people through an entire body of water by separating them and destroying the greatest army of the day in those same waters. God's power has been on display forever and ever. Jesus shows up and people are healed. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the dead are raised. God is the God of living and His power has always been on display. And I wonder, have you experienced the power of God? Do you know Him as powerful? Or do you just leave Him to the history books, to the textbooks, and say His power was back then? I'm not saying just the miraculous things, but do you, when's the last time you took a deep breath and thought about your lungs and the power it has? When's the last time you considered all the greatest minds in the world? I mean, we've sent people to the moon and back. We've put smartphones in millions and billions of people's pockets how did we figure all that out? The God of the universe is in control over all of our minds. He, he, he put brains in our heads. God is infinitely more powerful and majestic than we could imagine. God is beautiful. You watch the sun come up this morning, especially after a gloomy day like yesterday. 
and consider, you know what he's doing right now? A few time zones uh, west of here, he's painting another sunrise. And he's always painting sunrises and sunsets all the way around the world. One continuous, glorious display of his power. He has put waterfalls and canyons in all over the world. He has put billions of star in the stars in the sky. And somewhere around 385,000 children will be born today. Wow. God is powerful. And the power of God displays. He is alive. He is alive. You can't miss it if your eyes are open. God is the God of the living. Which brings me to just a couple implications for your life. This Easter Sunday, this resurrection day, if God's the God of the living, it means God's not dead. God is not dead. He is not asleep. He's not waiting for you to wake him up. He's not distracted or deep in thought or on vacation. He is very much alive. And he wants a relationship with you. He's listening. In order to have a relationship, you've got to have two sides uh, uh, alive, right? Jesus Jesus proved he's alive. God is alive. The very nature of God from the very beginning of time, and as he proved generation after generation, he knows people by name. He is alive, and he wants a relationship with you. If you treat God as just historical information in a book, then you're missing out on the greatest relationship available. Jesus was not just a man who lived in the Middle East some 2,000 years ago. He sits on his throne today. And the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead can be sitting with you tomorrow morning as you open up His Word. The author of the book sits down and reads it with you so that you can know Him better and better. He is alive and well. The all-powerful God lives in all people who believe in Him. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is not just out there or in the book, but He's in you? If you believe in Him, He is. We can talk directly to Him. Do you believe God has the power to work in your life? One of the greatest lies that frequently will try to help you overcome is you, we believe we can't change. We believe we are stuck in our ways or that person is stuck in their ways and they will never ever change. There is one being in the universe who is immutable, that is cannot change, and his name is God, not you. God is alive and he can change you. He is at work, he is alive and he is working in your life. Same for your circumstances. There is no circumstance God can't change. We cannot look at anything that we're facing, no matter how big the kingdom is or whatever the political situation is or whatever the war or whatever the economic situation, we cannot look at that and say that will never, ever change. God is in charge of whether it changes or not. He is not dead. We look at our lives so many times, our lives, our spouses, our, our economy, whoever else, whatever we're frustrated about, and we say we have no hope. You know when you don't have no hope? When God's dead and He's not dead. He is alive. Don't treat God as if He was dead. He's the God of the living. This is Resurrection Sunday after all. The tomb's still empty. He is alive and He is at work. God is committed to being in a covenant and in a relationship with His people, which means it's two-sided. So the other side of this is God's not dead and neither are all those who believe in Him, which means if you believe in Him, you too have life. God's not dead, and neither are all those who believe in Him. Death has lost its sting, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. It hurts a little, a lot, but it is not eternal. It's like a snake bite without venom. It can't really kill you. It hurts, 
but it does not kill you. We grieve loss. First Corinthians tells us, First Thessalonians, I mean, tells us not to grieve as those without hope. We have eternal life in Christ because God worked Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in every generation so that we can have life forever. God changes things. One of the biggest criticisms of the Sadducees in Jesus' day is that they were aristocratic, kind of wealthy. They liked power. They liked money. And as you think back, if they didn't believe in a resurrection, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If all you have to live for is this life, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Ten years from now, when you're, if, you're, you know, you're, if, you only, if you only live ten more years on this earth, well, might as well live the most of it, because make the most of it, because then it's gone. The Sadducees lived that way. They lived as if this life was all they had. So they had wealth, they had money, they, they had power, and they were going to hold on to it. At least they were consistent. But we believe in something greater, and it changes how we live. If we are alive and living forever, everlasting, if we have eternal, everlasting life, then we can live for something beyond the grave. We can live for the King over all things. It is a tragic and false way to live, to just live for this world. But John 3.16 tells us about something far greater than just between here and our last breath. Maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The living God wants you to also be alive and He has offered eternal life to us. Many times we think of eternal life, we primarily think of everlasting life. Let His life be on the grave. And that is absolutely a critical part of what it means to have eternal life. And that is especially comforting in our suffering, is it not? That this suffering won't last forever. We have an eternal life with God that will last forever. That is good news. But eternal life in the Bible doesn't only mean that. It doesn't just mean everlasting life. It means the fullness of life now. We get to have a relationship with God now that will last forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the God of the universe who has sent His Son to die for you, to pay for your sins so that you can know Him? That's the God we serve. That's the God we serve. He calls us, if we, if we know that, if we believe that about Him, He calls us to repent, that is, turn away from our sins and put our trust in Him, and we get to be invited into an eternal relationship with the God of the universe. When Jesus was tested and quizzed about the resurrection in Mark chapter 12, he, he pointed backwards, all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. But then a few days later, he took a little step further, a little step, okay, a big step further, to make sure we wouldn't miss the nature of God. We're in Mark 12, but if you flip forward ahead to Mark 15, you would see what we read earlier. We read it out of Luke's gospel, the same story in Mark's, that Jesus went before a council, went before some rulers, and for no just reason. They sentenced him to be crucified. He went willingly like a sheep to a slaughter. And he was put up on a cross, nailed to it at nine in the morning. At noon, it grew dark. And by three, he had taken his last breath. A friend named Joseph of Arimathea took his body off that cross and wrapped it and put it in a tomb. And for the whole next day, the whole world around him, everybody that knew of him, wondered what could possibly have gone wrong. We thought we knew what we were doing. We thought we were following this guy. We thought this really was the Messiah. But no Messiah can be the Messiah if he's dead. 
No God can be God if He's dead. And for a whole day as they waited that Sabbath day, that, that Shabbat day, that whole Saturday, they're wondering, how could God really be God if He's in the grave? We saw Him. He was on the cross. We saw Him wrapped up. We know where His tomb is. He can't be God because He's dead. But then, that first Easter morning, a group of women went out to that tomb, bringing some spices, finish up the burial process. And the tomb was open. Stone had been rolled away. An angel said, you can look in if you want, but he's not here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He, has, he is not here. He has risen, and he is alive. We don't serve a, dead, a, a God who's dead. Somebody who's truly God can't be dead. God is not dead. He is alive. And he has invited you and me to everlasting, eternal life with him now and forever. For all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. He is alive. He is risen. He's risen indeed.